You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Our scripture is from Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read there from verse 11 uh, through to the end of the chapter in verse 21, Galatians chapter 2 and from verse 11. Galatians, as you probably know, is uh, almost certainly Paul's first letter, uh, or more accurately, the first letter of Paul that we actually still possess. He may have written many letters before it, but this is chronologically the first one that we have in the New Testament. And there are many of the themes that are embedded here in Paul's earlier ministry, presumably, that he works out in greater detail in many other passages with which we are familiar. The problem in Galatia is that there are teachers who are insisting that true believers should also be circumcised. And uh, Paul sees that addition to faith in Christ as a denial of the gospel. It may seem to be a very small thing, but he says it is actually denying the gospel. And in chapter 1, he'd said if he came and uh, preached another gospel, or even if an angel from heaven came and preached another gospel, than the gospel they originally heard preached to them, then uh, he should be anathema. He should be cursed and damned. And uh, here, uh, he is giving, in the first two chapters, a very personal story. And uh, he, in these verses, tells a story um, that if you can put yourself into that story... Uh, the people who were present in the room when this happened must have been holding their breath and the room must have been filled with the most amazing sense of electricity. Here was one apostle who was, uh, quotes, Johnny come lately, staring down and rebuking the apostle to whom Jesus had said, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build your church. Um, so this is, a, this is an electrifying moment. And it's an illustration of this principle, uh, that these additions, in this case circumcision, are not just little differences among Christians, but, but going right to the heart of the gospel. And in this instance, destroying the beautiful new unity of Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, that is, Gentile believers, Gentile Christians, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, even Barnabas was led 
astray. And of course, Barnabas had been the man who saw Saul of Tarsus, a man nobody would trust. He had persecuted the church, and now he professed to be a Christian. And Barnabas had been the man who put his hand over his shoulder and said, stay with me, and uh, I will see you through this so that you are accepted by the whole church. And even courageous Barnabas has been swept away by fear of these people who have come from Jerusalem. And so Paul goes on. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We, Paul includes himself here, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I want to study Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, this Lord's Day evening, God willing, uh, next Lord's Day evening. And next Lord's Day evening, uh, we'll see it much more in the context in which the wonderful words of that verse are actually placed uh, we are a congregation almost of, of two halves. I don't mean the have and the have not, but uh, we're kind of hovering in the 50s and beyond, and we're hovering around 20 and a little beyond. And uh, there's a kind of generational gap here in the middle. So for those of you who are of the other generation, uh, let me introduce our study by saying Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 used to be for Christian people of my generation one of the big texts in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, every right-thinking Christian knew it off by heart. I don't think that's true any longer. I don't think it functions for uh, Christian people in the same way it functioned for Christian people in, let's say, the swinging 60s. There may be a reason for that. In my generation, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 could have been from anywhere in the New Testament. 
If you had asked Christians, what does Paul say before verse 20 or after verse 20, they would say, I honestly have no idea. And so it was a verse kind of plucked out of context and not seen within context. And actually something has happened to preaching and Bible study for many Christians since then that we tend to read things in context. We realize the Bible isn't just a promise box of kind of floating verses, grab one here, grab one there, and and, uh, struggle on in your Christian life. But that every verse has its context and needs to be read in its context. While that's true, there was also a very good reason why people land Galatians 2 verse 20. I happened to say to David as we were praying this evening, when uh, when did you last preach on, have you preached on Galatians 2 20? When did you last hear some Galatians 2 20? I said, I preached on Galatians 2 20 at least 10 times. I didn't know I was going to be preaching before the world expert in preaching Galatians 2 20 tonight. And then he said, I think it was the first verse I ever memorized. Now, why would that be the case? Well, listen to it again, and I think you'll immediately see. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In that generation, people used to speak about John 3.16 as the gospel in a nutshell. Actually, this is more of the gospel in a nutshell than John 3.16. It was a marvelous verse to memorize and to meditate on because so much of the gospel was packed into this one single verse. And what's even more fascinating than that? It may be the verse in the New Testament in more than any other verse in which so many prepositions have vast significance. In a sense, this is a text about which you can say, here is the gospel expressed to us by means of prepositions. I have been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. I live by faith in him who loved me and gave himself for me. Prepositions in Paul's letters have enormous significance. Some of you know the commentaries, New Testament commentaries, by the American, late American commentator William Hendrickson. William Hendrickson wrote his entire doctoral dissertation on this subject, the meaning of the preposition ante in the New Testament. So prepositions in the New Testament are of huge importance. Let me, if I, if I may, just rearrange the logic of what Paul is saying here so that we may grasp this. And let me Let me just reflect on the logic of what he is saying. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith in 
Christ. Because I have been crucified with Christ. And the life that I now live, I live because Christ lives in me. These are the four great truths of this text. Christ died for me. I have come to faith in Christ. As someone who believes in Jesus Christ, I can also say there is a deep sense in which I have been crucified with Christ. And the life that I now live, I live because Christ has come to dwell in me. Now, it's the first of these, first two of these that I want us to reflect on for a few minutes this evening, because they really are the foundation of the gospel. They are the reason why the Apostle Paul was willing, daringly willing, to confront the Apostle Peter, why he was so grieved at what Barnabas was doing. Because in these words, there, there stands the very foundation of the gospel. If, if I'm not a Christian, then I need to understand what the foundation of the gospel is. If I am a Christian, I need to make sure that my, my mind and heart and affections are not being cluttered up by things that are secondary in the gospel, so I've lost sight of the foundation of the gospel. Or I'm doing what these Galatian teachers were doing, I'm beginning to build other things into the foundation. I'm beginning to confuse the superstructure of my Christian life with the foundation of my Christian life. So, what is the foundation of Paul's gospel? Well, first of all, it's clear, isn't it? It's the wonder of the love of Jesus for him. The love of Jesus, says the hymn, what it is, none but his loved ones know. Now, Paul, in various places in his letters, is, is very interested in, in what we might call the dimensions of the love of God for us. Indeed, if you turned over a couple of pages to his much later letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, is one of his big prayers. And in that big prayer, he opens his heart, becomes enormously eloquent, and what he's praying for is that we would be able to grasp the dimensions, the, the sense of vastness of the love of Jesus Christ for us. It's length and breadth and height and depth so that we might know the love of God in Jesus Christ, even although we know we can never get our arms completely around it or get to the bottom of it. He says one of the great things in the Christian life is to is to feel the sheer immensity of the love of Jesus Christ. It's what stimulated some of our hymn writers, isn't it? Amazing love. And yet one of the things clearly that was happening in Galatia, happening perhaps sadly to Barnabas, and sometimes uh, sadly happens to us, is uh, we sing about amazing love, but it ceases to amaze us. It kind of quietly becomes deserved love or accustomed love. Of course, he loves me. That's his job, isn't it? Or of course, he loves me because of, because of who I am. 
And Paul understood that we slide into that. I think that's the reason why he was so fervent in prayer in Ephesians 3 and so concerned here that, that as Christians we should, we should feel, we should, we should sense the magnitude of this. It should make us stagger. It should overwhelm us. And you see, it never does that when people like me tell us the love of Jesus should overwhelm us, does it? Those of you who know and love C.S. Lewis remember uh, how C.S. Lewis, I think he's writing to somebody about writing, he says, uh, never tell anybody how they should feel about something. Describe that something so that they will feel that about it. And that's how the gospel works, isn't it? You know, if I, if I preach here till I'm blue in your face, you need to sense the love of Jesus Christ for you, it will leave you stone cold. At best, you will think, yes, I really do need to feel the love of Christ for me. And so what Paul characteristically does, isn't this true, is he shows us how wonderful the love of Christ is. Or he takes, him, takes us a little inside himself and says, you know, if you, if you see how this came to me, even as I describe my own experience, you know how this sometimes happens, some describes their own experience and you begin to experience the very reality they're describing. And look at how he describes it. He says, it's like this, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's the dimensions of the love of Jesus for me. How do we measure love? We usually measure love by how highly, esteem, how highly we esteem the person who loves, don't we? Uh, you know, it's nice that your dog loves you, but um, isn't it interesting that in the fairy stories it goes like this, that it's the person who has no reason to anticipate that the prince or the king will love her. And it usually goes that way around, doesn't it? It's the person who has no reason to believe that that could ever happen, who is most overwhelmed when it does happen. It's like Jesus says that the person who loves most in return, that is to say, the person whose being is opened by love is the person who has experienced most love in forgiveness. And uh, you can get no greater in heaven or on earth to love you than the Son of God. I mean, what a thing to be able to say. The Son of God, who, who has lived in this world of love with His Father and with the Holy Spirit and been beloved of the Father and beloved of the Holy Spirit, that, that this person who really knows what love is should set His love upon me. That's absolutely astonishing for the, the Apostle Paul. This is the Prince of Glory. And he has loved me. He, he has said to his father, Father, I love him. I love her. Interesting how, how at the beginning of the farewell discourse in John 13, 
that John begins the whole story of what Jesus does and says in these last hours with his disciples, knowing that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and he was going to God. He loved his own even to the end, even to the extremity. So we measure love by the greatness of the person who is the lover. And then we also measure love, don't we, by, on the other hand, the, the gap between the person who loves and the person who is loved, or the distance, or the contrast. I mean, this is, this is again how, how uh, fairy stories work, isn't it? Um, how, these, how many of these great myths work. As again Lewis says, I've not been reading Lewis this week, but Lewis, you know, often says, you know, that these great stories that touch our inmost being are in their own way reflections of the great story. That's why they touch us so deeply, because we long for a world in which that might be true, and what the gospel gives to us is the very world in which this is true, where Paul is able to say, when I measure the love of God, I, I think that it was the Son of God who loved me. And he's just told us in his letter, or written to the Galatians in his letter, about who that me was. Chapter 1, verse 13 you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. You remember how Paul speaks of himself as the chief of sinners. Now, from one point of view, we can all say that because we're the only sinner we really know from the inside. And as we begin to know ourselves, we can't imagine that anyone could be worse than this. But there is a sense in which Paul was speaking the naked truth when he said he was the chief of sinners. At least in history, he was the one man who seemed to be capable in those early years of the, the newfound church of absolutely destroying the whole thing, destroying what Jesus had died to create. And so when he came to himself and saw himself how could he see himself in any other way? He who had blasphemed, he who had persecuted, he who had the blood of men and women and perhaps children on his hands. And now he's able to say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. What I find moving about that is, there is actually nobody else in the whole New Testament who ever says, Jesus loved me. Nobody. John, of course, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's a kind of form of it. We know that when Jesus looked on the rich young ruler, looking on him, he loved him. But isn't it staggering that the apostle John never actually says he loved me. And the rich young ruler, he didn't want to be loved by Jesus, not in that all-consuming love that Jesus had. It's not that Jesus didn't love them. 
oh, how deeply Jesus loved John and how, how deeply John knew that. But it is interesting that the only person who actually puts it this way in the New Testament, the only person in a sense uh, who, who was conscious that he had the kind of past that highlighted exactly what it meant for anyone to be loved by Jesus. But it was obvious in his case. It was like written in capital letters. It was up on the screen in his case. This is what the gospel is. This is the, this is the dimension of the love of Jesus, that the Son of God loved me, the Apostle Paul, when I was Saul of Tarsus and persecuted the church. And then there's another dimension, isn't there? First dimension is the identity of the lover. Second dimension is the distance between the lover and the loved one. And uh, the third dimension is this. What will the lover do in order to have the loved one? And that's fairy stories again, isn't it? That's the, you know, that's every great romance, isn't it? that the lover will do something extraordinary in order to possess the loved one. And the way Paul puts it is like this. He says, the Son of God loved me, and he gave himself for me. Now, you would need to be kind of unusually shrewd reading the English New Testament, perhaps to to appreciate the fact, and it comes out in a number of ways in Paul's letters, that this language he is using is, is weighted with a very profound understanding of the gospel. The Son of God handed himself over for me. So it's not just, you know, sometimes you say, well, I really, you know, I really gave myself for her and she just, she just ignored me. You know, I, I put in a lot of energy. But the language that he's using here is language that's used in a wide variety of places in the New Testament, characteristically focusing on Jesus' passion, on his trial and judgment and his crucifixion. In some instances, it's, it's a kind of legal language. It's language about being handed over to judgment. And Paul always has that behind his thinking about the work of Jesus Christ. That if you want to see it in its quintessence, what you need to do is to understand what was going on in that last third of the gospel narratives. And even to understand that the last third of the gospel narratives are all about the last week of Jesus' life. And almost half of John's gospel is about the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And it's there. It's not just that he came and gave himself for people, for lepers and for the blind. All of that's true. When he said, when, when someone touched him, I know somebody touched me because virtue has gone out of me. Power has gone out of me. He was giving himself for people. But the great place where he gave himself for people, the great place where he gave himself for Saul of Tarsus was when he, when he handed himself over 
to the judgment of the divine wrath on the cross of Calvary, handed himself over to those moments when he would cry out in the darkness, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's this that expands Paul's understanding of the, of the magnitude of the love of Jesus. And because, you see, he understands this, that the atonement, the death of Christ, all that took place on Calvary didn't happen outside of the fellowship of the Trinity, but actually happened within the fellowship of the Trinity. That the Son handed himself over in our humanity to the holy wrath and judgment of his heavenly Father. And that in those moments, this amazing paradoxical reality took place. That at the very moment when the Father's heart was bursting with pride and admiration that Jesus would be obedient unto the death of the cross for the sake of sinners, that 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 moment of enormous joy, satisfaction, pride in his Son would also be the moment when his wrath would be poured out upon him because he was standing there in my place, in my place condemned. He stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. It's the extent to which the lover will go for the loved one and what he will do for the beloved that expands my affections in response, my mind as I I try to grapple with how can this be? And that's what the hymn writers teach us to do, isn't it? Amazing love. How can this be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The distance he goes for us. The distance into the darkness. The distance into the the black hole of the cross. Many years ago now, one of our sons who was never given to organizing things, I happened to say to him, uh, have you any plans for summer vacation? I hoped he would come with us and we would be able to play golf together. I had uh, ulterior motives. Yes, he said, it's all arranged. And I said, where are you going? He said, Australia. I said, who's all going? He's the kind of person who'd always fit in with what the boys were doing. Australia. Have you any idea how far Australia is? I said, well, who's all going? He said, nobody's going going on my own. Sure, I thought immediately I didn't dare say it. If you're a father with that kind of son, you would think the same. It's a woman. (laughs) There can be no other reason. I held my breath. I thought, my boy, he's traveling the world for for the love of a girl. Wow. Remember how this Peter who's mentioned here says in First Peter about the work of Jesus, that what he does is something that the angels long to look into. What do you think they thought? When they overheard, as it were, put in your imagination this way, 
It's true, but it must be greater than this, that they, that they overheard the father saying to the son, it's time. And the son saying, then with the help of you, Holy Spirit, I'm going to go. I don't know how well angels understand the Old Testament. You need to ask, Will, how well angels understand the Old Testament? How clearly did they see how the suffering servant would come? But you just imagine for a moment that their ability to understand the Old Testament is not as clear as those who now possess the New Testament. And suddenly it dawns on them. You mean he's the one. You mean he's the one who is going to be smitten and stricken, who's going to be cut out of the land of the living, forsaken for the sake of God's people. You mean you can almost feel them uh, not only veiling their faces and covering their feet, but stopping flying with the other two wings and putting those wings over their mouths and saying, just like I thought, it must be a woman. He must be going for sinners. There's nothing else there to go for but sinners. And this is what Paul senses. Hey. And of course, there's a very special sense in which he has a unique awareness of this because his sin had been so manifest. But he knows our hearts as well. He sees the same as true of us. That angels are not just covering their mouths and saying, don't tell us he's going to die for Saul of Tarsus. But they're covering their mouths and saying, don't tell us he's going to die for Sinclair Ferguson or David Robertson or Will Traub or, or Tom Courtney or whoever. Died he for me? who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And you see, once you sense that, what Paul is to say about the, the wonder of the love, instead of, of, of kind of screwing up your your fingers and, and biting your tongue and say, I, I, must, I must do better about sensing the love of Jesus. Then it just comes down upon you like a waterfall that flows down from heaven. And there ought to be only one response that you, you can possibly make when this grasps you. There is only one response. It, it's, it's like a divine tsunami that comes in this great wave over you. And you understand now why Paul says, in the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there is the wonder of Christ's love and there is the simple response of faith to that love. I trust him. What, what is faith? Well, in the New Testament, faith is contrasted with 
two other things at least, isn't it? It's contrasted with sight, which really means a purely horizontal way of looking at things. That's the way non-Christians look at the death of Jesus. At best, they look at the death of Jesus as, as the martyrdom of a very good man and a great teacher, although how they can possibly imagine he was a great teacher and a good man if they know what he actually taught, if he were not the Son of God. A brave man, somebody who'd be celebrated on the front page of the newspaper, so tragic that he died young because he was loved by so many. Um, but that sight... You don't need a a Bible to work that out. You don't need the Holy Spirit to work that out. And anyway, it's not the whole truth. And usually falsehoods are half-truths, aren't they? Taken to extremes. No, faith is set over against sight because faith has eyes to see what sight itself never grasps. Faith understands the inner significance of this death, the inner significance of this cry of desolation on the cross. Sight tells me he felt abandoned when he died. Faith tells me, died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. And the other thing, of course, that faith is set against in the New Testament is works. My dear friends, I think we can put it simply like this. We, we live in a society where, where there is still the remnants of the Christian religion. We live in a society of people, and this has been true of Scotland probably in the majority since Christianity came to these islands. Even after the Reformation, most people have thought, how do we get accepted by God? We get accepted by God by doing the best we can by good works. And people will insist to us. And the ultimate answer to that is not to argue about the quality of the works, but to say, if that were acceptable to the Heavenly Father, what in all heaven or history would possess him to pour out his wrath upon his beloved Son for our salvation? Why do we believe at the end of the day there can be no other way? Because when faith understands the significance of the cross, it knows there cannot possibly be any other way or the Father would have provided it. May I put it daringly like this? In Gethsemane, Jesus said to his Father, is there no other way for them to be saved? Now, say you were his father or mother. If there was another way, wouldn't you have said, even at this last minute, my son, I will move heaven and earth and hell to find another way. And so faith can never contemplate the notion that there is anything I can possibly contribute to my salvation. And faith is that great work of God's genius 
which causes my heart to reach out to Christ and all that he has done for me and receive him without ever contributing to what he has done. And that's its beauty. That in his grace, God catches me up so that I actively give myself to Jesus, that I respond to the hymn we were singing of Bonners at the end of the service this morning. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my chest. I came to Jesus. Yes, you did come to Jesus. God did not bring some magnet, as it were, to force you against your will to come to Jesus. Uh, It was against your will that you may have been irrevocably drawn to Jesus by the power and truth of the gospel, but you came to Jesus as you were, weary and worn and sad. You found in him a resting place. He has made you glad. And the thing you know as you gaze upon his love, as you understand the dying of his death, that there could be no other way. And thank God there is no contribution that you have made, can make, or ever need to make. Because he loved you when you were the chief of sinners. And he'll love you to the end. And what Paul is saying to the Galatians is, when you understand this, you know you don't need anything in addition to this. Anything that could ever contemplate being an addition to this inevitably would be a failure to understand and experience this. Because to be conscious that the Son of God has loved me and given himself for me and to come and trust in him is to discover that he provides everything that you will ever need. And when you think about it, of course it's this way. Because what God is saying in this, the Son of God loves you and gives himself for you. God God the Father is saying, I have no more to give you. I have no more to give you. In order to bring you to this realization, I've not only given my son for you, but I'm giving my Holy Spirit to you to work in you so that you'll not see this by the eyes of sight or by the works of your hands, but by the eyes of faith and the embrace of the gospel. I have given you everything I have, my love, my son, my spirit. To think that you can add to this is is like thinking you can add to God. So as, uh, is it Jordan Coughlin's hymn, all I have is Christ. And when I have Christ, I have everything I know I will ever need to have. Now, what's Paul's beef? It's this. He feared that there were some people in the church in Galatia who had never actually seen this clearly. The love of Jesus, what it is, 
none but his loved ones know. And there were some there who had never known what it was to be his loved ones. And so he's saying to them in this single verse, this is the gospel. You know sense of how much he has loved you. And don't you find yourself uh, being, being constrained in a strange willingness for all your fear of the unknown it will bring you into in embracing Jesus Christ in faith when you come to him. And it is possible to be in a church, even in a church like this. I've never forgotten an elderly lady saying to me in a church I served, people around here think I've been a Christian most of my life, but you know, she whispered to me conspiratorially, I've only been a real believer in the last two or three years. So do you know what the love of Jesus is? And the big thing, of course, for Paul is that some of them were drifting away. Drifting away from the love of Jesus to rebuild their own salvation. And that's always our tendency, isn't it? And so we need to, well, I said earlier on that's a bad word, didn't I? But it's still true. We do need to. But we don't do what we need to do by thinking, I need to do this. We do that by it being done for us. I asked a question of someone in a hugely affluent church. What does so-and-so do? And they gave a wee smile and said, oh, so-and-so. He's not one of those who do. He's one of those for whom someone else does. And when you think about it, that's the way to live the Christian life, isn't it? To be one of those for whom someone else has done. And then to discover the glorious freedom and empowerment and transformation that that produces. Well, that's the first two prepositions. And uh, God willing, we'll come to others next week. Our Heavenly Father, we delight to bask in the presence of our Lord Jesus. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. Wonder how he could love us because we too are sinners, unclean. We thank you for his amazing love, for your wonderful gift, for the overwhelming privilege and joy of knowing Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Oh Lord, we pray that your love may so pour down upon us that we may be redirected from our drifting and as on a powerful wave brought back again to the shore and to solid ground. And to the kind of experience that Simon Peter had known earlier on and must have needed again when Paul rebuked him. When you said to him, Lord Jesus, do you love me more than these? And he said, Lord, you know 
but I love you. And our Savior bade him and surely bids us go and serve, feed the sheep, care for the lambs. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.